This episode contains content such as sexual violence, genocide, and militarization that may be disturbing for some listeners. Occupation. The action, state, or period of occupying or being occupied by military force. This is Anarima. This is Diera. Pass on like we're gonna define some terms that will be used in the episode just so you know their meaning before you listen. So first is self-determination, which means the process by which a country determines its own statehood and forms its own allegiances and government. The next is plebiscite, which is the direct vote of all members of an electorate or of Um, on an important public question such as a change in the constitution. And some other terms that you may want to research before listening are extradition um, along with article 370 and uh, 35A. This episode is going to be talking about occupation in three regions, um, Palestine, Hong Kong, and Kashmir. Um, And we've invited people who are active activists, advocates for these issues, um, and they are of these descents, so they are the voices speaking for their people. Um, And we just want to acknowledge that there are other protests that are happening around the world in Lebanon, Haiti, Chile, Iraq, and the Kurdish people in Turkey, Um, along with many more. But if you're not familiar with these, please look them up. This episode is split up into two parts. The first part goes into um, the specific situations happening in each region and um, talking about colonization and also imperialism and how that affects um, each region. And also in the second part goes into self-determination, how nationalism functions within self-determination and how each region uh, can use self-determination to help their respective situations. Now we're going to introduce our guests. Hi, my name is Sam. I use he, him, his pronouns. I am a first-generation immigrant from Hong Kong, and I'm currently an undergraduate student at the University of Michigan. Hi, I'm a recent graduate of University of Michigan, and I I identify as a second-generation Kashmiri Pandit, and I use she, her pronouns. My name is Safwan. I am a master's student in the business school. I am a first-generation Kashmiri American Muslim, and I identify with he, him. Now we'll introduce our creative of color um, and then move right into our conversation. Hi, my name is Zoya Zalatimo. I'm a senior in stamps and Middle Eastern studies. I do a lot of uh, artwork and creative pieces around my Muslim and Palestinian identities, which moving to the US um, almost for the first time I found are increasingly like politicized and kind of polarizing. So. That's something that I like to speak on through my art because it's been a different experience um, since I used to live in the Gulf and it wasn't really like a minority. I wasn't a minority. Okay, so what is your process of creating art and what's your favorite piece of artwork? Um, I think a lot of the times when something, when I make something that revolves around my identity, it's like, that's always been a source of inspiration for me because it, it's just, I have a lot of feelings about it. And especially as a senior now, over the past four years, I've had so many different like personal experiences with like Islamophobia on this campus and like anti-Arab sentiment on this campus that, and it's been like developing a lot over time. So sometimes whenever I'm stuck on like what I have to do in stamps and there's always like all these deadlines and you get really like, 
push to like make something when you maybe aren't necessarily feeling creative I kind of refer back to my experience with this identity and go to that um those feelings as a way to I don't know make art um a lot of it is about like color and words um and as far as like the pieces that you make um I know that you said you're inspired a lot by like your identity and things like that but what inspires you like when you have a deadline to finish and you're like I don't feel creative anything what inspires you to get something done and and when you do get things done is that work sometimes um even more like I don't want to say better because like I think that art is definitely subjective but do you feel like more proud of that type of art definitely um being proud is like a big part of it for me especially because like Palestinian history and culture has been like systematically erased especially in the U.S. and even just like when I have to talk about my art in front of like my class which usually we do like a big critique at the end even that is always like I'm kind of nervous about it because I've never really had any issues but it's always like kind of my time to like talk about what it's all about um and I think it's I don't know I kind of feel like responsible in a way to like make things that speak to that group or at least my my experience of it because it's different because I've like diaspora Palestinian so I don't actually like have experience living under the occupation specifically but um my family does so yeah uh a lot of it is pride I guess or trying to celebrate um and not always making it um if you want to plug yourself like a place where people can look at your artwork do that now and if you have any like shows coming up or any like things that you want people to come to you can plug them right now um yeah I so I have a website which is zoyazalatimo.com um a lot of my stuff is like digital painting and printmaking um it's not all about my identity but a lot of it is and I also sell it on society six um you can get like stickers and like different things like that that have my prints on them so I think it's society6.com slash Zoya Z. Um, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Okay, thank you all for coming today. Um, we're going to just go right into it. If you don't mind giving us like a very short recap of what's happening in your designated area. So there was an extradition bill that was in place in Hong Kong because of a murder case that was happening in Taiwan. A couple, Chen Tong Kai and his girlfriend, went to Taiwan and they only came back with one. Uh, Cheng Tong Kai murdered his girlfriend in Taiwan. But since there is not an extradition bill in place between Taiwan and Hong Kong, the government drafted one. But the, the catch is that they also included mainland China. And that fueled everyone in Hong Kong because um, the jurisdiction and the uh, the judicial system in between Hong Kong and China is very different. As far as autonomy goes between um, Hong Kong as a more autonomous region, whereas China has its own um, Communist Party of China. So then the discrepancy of judicial system made things really difficult for Hong Kong people. So then a lot of people went out to protest and it turned into pro uh, 
it turned into a series of police brutality and escalated into state violence and became a police state crisis, essentially. So with Kashmir recently in the news, you might have heard of the revocation of Articles 370 and 35A. Um, the significance of these two articles were kind of the last remaining uh, parts of autonomy for the for Kashmir within uh, India. And the second part of it was the removal of Article 35A, which removed the exclusive rights to land for Kashmiris in the area. So for the issue of Kashmir, Kashmir is kind of, just as a background, is an area between India and Pakistan, and it is under split control. And it's been like that since 1947, um, when the original kind of conflict over the area emerged. So with the recent news, the uh, revoking of the two articles has led to a complete curfew and shutdown of the area, uh, no access to phones, internet, medical supplies, um, people are not able to leave their homes. Uh, there's stories of recently of, of thousands of arrests, killings, um, protests, and this is kind of a, a flare-up of a, of a longer-term issue that we will get into more during the podcast. So um, in terms of the humanitarian issue in Palestine, and when I talk about Palestine, I mean... Palestinian Arabs living inside mainland Israel, Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip and also in the West Bank. It's been a constant and sort of stagnant and worsening situation where Palestinians have been treated as second-class citizens in so many ways that they aren't being like addressed by the international community and nothing's really changed. And I think the hardest part is that especially in the U.S., um, it seems that an exclusion is kind of made when it comes to Palestine. Like, we have all these, like, human rights standards that we put on to all these different, like, geopolitical situations, but then when it comes to Palestine, it's just ignored. So we'll get into some of our questions now. So our first one is centered around, like, what makes um, each specific situation in your respective places um, unique? So what makes Hong Kong unique is that the case of Hong Kong unique is that Hong Kong was under British colonialism for 150 years um, be, uh, after opium war, losing opium war to China. And um, Hong Kong is a really interesting place with um, Chi Han Chinese immigrant as well as immigrants from all of the places and thriving in this capitalist society where big Western corporations are established inside the soil of Hong Kong. And when you look at the economic levels of Hong Kong, you can see that it is really gentrified and most people are on the more wealthier side. And that's what you see a lot of people in the protests right now too. Um, it's mostly the people who are more educated on what's like the issues of happening in Hong Kong. And there would be fights between the protesters where they understand the power dynamics and you know calling the police like, you're uneducated on this, like you are um, dogs, you um, didn't graduate high school and things like these like insults. So then, it's really interesting because um, the people who are out in the protests are more privileged, whereas that's not always the case in other places. But then the same kind of violence is inflicted in Hong Kong where, you know, recently, like, 
the norm of violence in Hong Kong right now is that thousands of tear gas would be fired in one day, uh, rubber bullets would be fired at press, and people who are innocent just walking down the streets, um, you know, random arrests around the streets, and mostly targeted at young people. And the youngest age that is arrested, we have seen, you know, 12-year-olds getting arrested, and that is ridiculous. And I think that's what makes Hong Kong special, and that um, the case is that we see the tactics used, the tactics of violence used in Hong Kong is basically a recycled tactic used in early days of British colonial era. I think what makes Kashmir really unique is it's the, it's often termed as the heart of a territorial dispute between India and Pakistan. However, that narrative, um, which is often broached when you're talking about human rights violations and in um, international discourse, erases the fact that the discourse, that um, this narrative erases Kashmiri voices. And so we often hear about Kashmir when India and Pakistan are about to go to nuclear war. We see this um, in February. We saw this. We see this is a pattern where it's routinely brought up. And um, however, not only does this erase, this narrative erase um, the voices of Kashmiris, it it erases the fact they've been militarized every single day. And um, it kind of normalizes the fact that the military is there in your neighborhood surveilling you um, all the time. And then I would say an additional thing that I would say about the uniqueness of uh, Kashmir is, uh, like said, the, the fact that it is uh, kind of in, in the crux of two countries when it comes to nuclear war. I would point to similarities that, that it has to um, many of the other kind of occupations that exist around the world. If you look at East Turkestan, if you look at Palestine, there's very key similarities and, and there's different ways that that occupation manifests mes- manifests itself against the civilian population. And um, But there, there's always going to be similar things, you know, mass appearance, disappearances, uh, you know, unmarked graves, uh, extrajudicial killings, rape as a weapon against the population. All these things are common themes that you see in terms of governments using these tools to kind of go to war with civilian populations. And so even though there are certain distinct factors uh, between any of these three situations, I'd point back to similarities. Um. I think I want to start with saying when it comes to Palestine, it's always been, and I mean, especially like, for example, on this campus, it's always framed as this really like complex, emotional conflict. And in a way, like, I think that deters other people who don't belong to either of these identities to engage with it. And I find that quite dangerous because it doesn't allow for like people that maybe are ignorant to the situation to kind of engage with it and learn more about it because they're too like scared off by you know how like emotional and how I don't know um and it is but so I guess back to like the question of I mean what makes it unique but also similar to kind of the other things that we're talking about today in some ways is that Palestine was under the British mandate in the 1930s. So since then, Palestinians have never had self, like agency or self-determination. And then after that in 1947, my grandparents included, had to flee um, to Jordan. And since then they've been living under a military occupation where they literally have to have like different colored 
license plates on their cars to, you know, single them out as Palestinian passport holders or Palestinian. Actually, it's an identity card. Um, they can't go on the same highways. They get there's cons and Gaza is just a whole other like really, really awful situation. But like there's electricity shortages, there's droughts and there's just like so many things that make living there really difficult that censorship in the U.S. doesn't allow us to see. And um, our historical ties with that, with the current, like especially today with Trump and with moving the embassy, which happened um, last May, um, it's just difficult and almost like impossible for anyone to see the realities of like what's going on. Yeah, I think there's a common thread in all of these, which is kind of the the colonized becoming the colonizer and this common thread of British colonialism um, and maybe other forms of colonialism too. So I guess, how do we, how do we see that happening now? How do we see these colonizers becoming, uh, or I guess these colonized places becoming colonizers and how are they marginalizing the other people in their place? Um, yeah. And I guess like you can just comment on how like imperialism and race has tied into it. So just, it doesn't have to be like a, concrete answer to this question, but what are your observations from that? So when you look at Hong Kong, right, um, recently, since the police violence has escalated, um, Carrie Lam, which is the chief of Hong Kong, has passed um, emergency laws, essentially bans people wearing masks on the streets, and that's only uh, stage one of the law, and there's probably so many other stages, say, like um, taking away properties and taking away um, people's money and uh, you know, denying them uh, of leaving the country and things like that. Uh, all these all these implementation can be traced back to uh, kind of like martial law during colonial era and a lot of dangerous colonial era laws that the British colonialism has in place. And recently I have actually uh, listened to one of my favorite podcasts and they, from Hong Kong, uh, my favorite podcast from Hong Kong said that um, all these reusing of colonial law, they actually combined with the violence of author authoritarian government from China and impose it in Hong Kong. So they just like recycle those laws and put it back in place to oppress its own people. And in terms of how Chinese imperialism goes, you see Tibet and East Tur Turkestan being militarized the same way or even worse. and now it's happening in Hong Kong, they're kind of pushing for this Han Chinese homogeny around China to use this quote-unquote tactic, but not really to unite China as like a nationalism tactic. And it's really dangerous because there are so many indigenous um, ethnic, other ethnic, uh, Chinese ethnic people who are not Han, and they just trying to um, unite it for, you know, economic betterment and things like that for the whole nation. And it's just really dangerous because, because essentially when you're using those tactics on you know, different lands, especially indigenous land of like Tibet and East Turkestan, you're, this is essentially like colonizing again. Like you see British, what British has done in colonization and you are reusing it to your own benefit. And this is just like a, revisiting of history and it's just like a uh, and not like never-ending cycle of it 
think it's really important to think about how when the British colonized South Asia, they not only were marginalizing the South Asian people, they were also instituting systems of government that were specifically created in order to marginalize a certain group of people. You see this with Muslims in South Asia, uh, specifically in India. You see this with the Dalit population. And um, so when those systems of abuse and exploitation are basically are put in place, you're going to see patterns of colonialism um, because the structures themselves are intended to oppress. When you look at specifically Kashmir, um, military tactics um, used against the Kashmiri people, targeting of um, Kashmiri women, um, saying using the um, imperial excuse of, oh, we're trying to protect the Kashmiri people. We're trying to protect um, the Kashmiri women from from their men and which is you know based in an islamophobic narrative that seeks to um kind of villainize um muslim men you see this pattern similarly when the u.s invaded afghanistan there was the claim that like you know we we're here to like protect afghani women and it and like these narratives of you know we're the saviors it hides the fact that like you're going into this land in order to exploit it and you don't care about its people. So one tactic of, I would say, both violence and oppression that I noticed and I heard a lot more about when I visited Palestine two years ago is the way that they make citizens constantly have their ID card on them. The West Bank is divided into three zones and it's a whole system of like bureaucracy that inhibits movement, inhibits like just like basic human rights of where you can live and where you can work. That's also supported through the network of checkpoints. But so on your ID card, you have your religion, um, like a photo of you, your job and all this as a way of almost surveilling Palestinians. And it's something that gets checked like and you have to constantly have on you, you know, at any moment you could be asked to see your ID card. It's a reality that we wouldn't be able to maybe understand. I guess another concrete example of violence, and there's, you might have heard of a village on the outskirts of East Jerusalem that was demolished um, last summer called Khan al-Ahmad, which is such a, it's like a, a history of villages being demolished and literal houses like being bulldozed down where people were living and families having to to flee or to move somewhere else um it's something to you know keep in mind and be aware of like that's going on that's happening nothing's like really changed i know with the onset of like social media and different outlets like that we get our media from so many different places so i guess what's the importance um of really critical analysis around the media that you take in about these issues and where do you get your media from um, surrounding these issues? Something that's really impressive that Hong Kong protesters are doing is that they're using this social media platform called LIHKG and how it functions is basically a Reddit kind of platform but catered to uh, Hong Kong people specifically and someone from Hong Kong invented this app and it was like on Android and App Store, and they also use Telegram to like communicate. So all these technology really play into it because of uh, of all these technology really play into it. Where 
LIHKG served more as a platform, social media sharing tactics, like in a mass, is a ma in a mass uh, population way, where someone would post tactics, and um, if it's something that is useful, then everyone would comment below and make it like the popular post, so that everyone would notice what's going on and things like that. And then it would be small threads underneath it to go to the Telegram link, and then it would be different group chats or channels where you can get them more specifically uh, live updates of different issues. So for example, right now I'm uh, subscribed to a bunch of channels on Telegram where it broadcasts um, minute by minute or even up to seconds of what's going on in each street in different regions of Hong Kong where if a protest is going on and someone would live tweet or not live tweet but like live update in the channel and say, oh, police are coming in this way and things like that. So. Um, it's just really impressive how um, technology is integrated into the protest tactics. But at the same time, um, as we enter this, well, we are in the digital era um, where technology can also be weaponized by the government. So we see a lot of social media blackouts at times in Hong Kong. Well, obviously not as frequent as other places because I think a lot of servers that... in a lot of social media servers in Hong Kong, are they strategically move to overseas to prevent that from happening, but it still happens. And they have blacked out WhatsApp before, they have blacked out LIHKG and Telegram. And you know, it just goes to prevent you know, people from communicating tactics and shut down protests. And I think the worst thing that happened is more on surveillance where they are really big on face recognition ID. That's why everyone was wearing masks on the street and now that masks are banned, there's a big thing of, you know, people are going to get recognized when they walk on the streets, when they walk by uh, light poles and there's a camera on the light pole where they can sense what people's identities are like just by scanning them walking around and that's really scary because um, essentially that data can be shared around um, the Chinese government and everything like that. So. That kind of um, invasion of privacy really plays into the technology of weaponizing it by the government. And that um, also another thing that I can think of is uh, they would shut down subway systems uh, just to trap protesters in a certain region so that they can do mass arrests by the police. Or even um, at the worst, like they would transport police around using the subway system and block it off for police use and just using to using it to make the police travel easier through subway so you can see this dynamic play out in really special dynamic play out in hong kong of technology where how it's used by the government how they weaponize it but also how it is used in protest tactics so i would say uh specifically kashmir the reason that kind of unbiased sources of media are so important is because in an area of occupation, India is going to do whatever it can to um, keep hidden the tactics that they're using in order to oppress the local population. So the most significant kind of news for not only for not only the international population but for Kashmiris themselves have come from outside organizations. So within the area, the Indian media is is very propaganda heavy, and, and the majority of the Indian media refuses to report accurately what's going on in the, in this, in the, in the area. And so 
the narratives are very Islamophobic and very much in the line of our military is killing terrorists. And if, if a child dies, oh, it was a necessary, the child was being used as a human shield, or um, this is a ne necessary tactic for our military to, you know, achieve peace in the region. Whereas now, even for Kashmiris, it's become difficult to know what's going on because in, in times of where the Indian government wants to suppress any kind of local organizations, they'll turn off the internet, they'll turn off WhatsApp, they'll turn off uh, local landlines, they'll refuse to allow um, businesses to operate, hospitals to operate. And so Kashmiris are trapped in their own homes. And so it, it's not just a sense of being trapped, it's also not knowing what's going on in, in other places. And so a lot of the information is localized to villages. Uh, and so what we've seen is the international organizations that have been able to come in and gain an insight into what's happening are in direct conflict with the Indian government. So earlier in the year when the curfew started, the BBC reported about protests that were going on and firings against protesters. And the video was, was shown on the BBC website. India, the Indian government claimed that this was doctored video and, and demanded that the BBC took it, take it down, but the BBC kind of stood by it. And it's been these kind of international organizations that have come in Amnesty International, the UNHCR, um, kind of other organizations that have done census data and tried to figure out exactly the scale of what has gone on that's come as a shock to even Kashmiris. So we're talking about upwards of 70,000 plus extrajudicial killings. Uh, we're talking about it being one of the worst rape wars in the entire world where censuses have found that one in 10 women have, or one in 10 people have directly suffered sexual violence from Indian soldiers, which is an unprecedented rape compared to uh, other area, other places where rape has been used as a weaponized tool. You're talking about thousands of thousands of unmarked graves that have been discovered from international organization, by these international organizations. And these are unbiased organizations. So uh, for Kashmiris, this is, this is something that's very validating. This isn't just Kashmiris claiming, you know, India has gone to war with us. This is other international organizations that are coming in and saying, this is an unprecedented level of human rights violations. Um, and it gives a credibility to those claims that I think is very powerful. Um, I have two things to add. Um, one, specifically, with the communication cutoffs, um, the intention behind the cutoffs, as claimed by the Indian government, was to prevent unrest in the region. Uh, but we know that we've seen this all around the globe, that social media and um, text messages, WhatsApp, is a fantastic way of communicating and organizing resistance. Um, we saw in 2014 when Ferguson happened, um, Palestinian activists were going on Twitter telling um, Ferguson activists, hey, this is how you protect yourself from tear gas. And social media is used as a tool to share these resources and protect each other. And with the communication blackout, you're essentially preventing, well, not preventing, you're trying to prevent people from resisting because um, in protesting because there's because a lot of people were not happy about it. And when thousands of people showed up to protest, the Indian government denied that there even was a protest. And two, I want to say that social media is also used as a weapon against Kashmiris. I personally get about 20 WhatsApp forwards a day. Um, I only got 10 today, which was kind of small, but like about about falsified videos of look how ca happy Kashmiris are about this situation or look um, 
this doc this history that you're talking about it's all doctored no um hindus were always a part of kashmir and like they should always be deemed to rule and we and um it's a pattern that you you notice a lot with the modi government of um false whatsapp forwards are sent around and people are killed because of it and not only is so i just want to say that like social media while it is a really great tool it's also used by the state in order to perpetuate a false narrative the same thing is basically happening around the world it's the same thing is happening around in china right so especially in tibet or east turkestan the uyghur muslim camp you see the same narrative painting over the uyghur muslim in concentration camp when you see you know chinese media how they portray uyghur muslim camp they always show oh this is a re-education camp look how happy they are celebrating their own culture in this camp and you and the media would you know um, interview those uh people who are in these so-called, you know, re-educate, uh, so-called, you know, um, self, self-improvement self uh, education center, centers and say, oh, how do you feel about here? And they would always, like, say in front of the camera, oh, like, we're so glad to be here. Like, this kind of picture, you know, th- that shows that, this shows, like, this false information that they want to show to the international community of um how they're to justify their violence to master violence over using all these um seemingly like false information essentially and another thing that i want to add is um technology dealing with um the tech companies like when tech is such a big thing in this digital era so actually this just happened today or recently like these past few days that the police force is trying to get in contact with uh, the Hong Kong branch of Facebook to get all the pictures of police violence, the evidence of police violence deleted off of Facebook entirely. And we don't know how that's going to play out, but there are sources that are saying that they want to collaborate with Facebook and how, you know, these big companies, these big tech companies play in a role in capitalist society and um, colonial society is crucial and often people overlook them and you know we have to start paying attention to how they p- play a role in like tech industry and things like that so yeah they always like to paint this false information of uh, what's going on when it's not really happening yeah um, a lot of kind of the points that I was going to make have been brought up um, I just wanted to add like I've mentioned this kind of briefly before but in the u.s um the mainstream media's bias toward painting palestinians and palestinian muslims actually regardless of religion um and and demonizing them in the news is is so prevalent or just actually just like not not showing or like not telling i don't know um not like adequate adequate coverage of for example the um the protests that happened when the embassy moved in may of last year there was like very minimal coverage of that and because of the us's um like both like 
very high level political and economic support of the Israeli government that plays out in the media too and that has like more most people that I I would say like have that understanding of what's going on in that um especially living here um one thing that is like I think not I don't know maybe most people don't know is students and professors um, who say anything about Palestine it can be put on a website with your name and face um, and this is I, I think like a unique case that I haven't really seen where you can go on this website and they have someone's name up there and it really just like ruins their reputation or like chances of like I don't know like future employment and things like that um and it's really difficult because you want to be able to organize and like say something but that is a constant like anxiety that I personally have um especially when like traveling back there um you know I I've personally like heard stories of being at the airport and they go through like your phone and your laptop and surveillance over there is also a big big thing with that we are going to wrap up this section um, and then we'll be back with another section continuing this conversation which will be more about self-determination and we will talk about how communities can engage as well um, so we'll see you then this is the end of part one um, you can scroll over to the next episode for the second part which deals with self-determination mm-hmm.